Boys and girls, thank you for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Listen, you can go to Spotify right now and you can watch everything unfold. You don't, it's on the video portion is on Spotify and it's on YouTube. So either way, uh, we greatly appreciate it. Will we get kicked off Spotify as much as YouTube? I sure hope not. That'll be a good thing. That's good. That might be a good, good venue thing. for us. Uh, first up, we are brought to you by the great boss shot shells. It Home. Is- of the brand new number nines, the Stanfield nines. That's right, the Stanfield nines by Boss. Mm-hmm. Perfect for teal hunting, dove hunting, quail hunting, folks. Your it's, smaller birds. It's coming down the road where you're not going to be shooting lead no more at all. So you might as well jump on the train and get on the Stanfield nines. Also, turkey season is firing up all over the United States. You got Boss Tom out there. It is very, very wicked, and I tell you what. People loved it in Nashville. Yes, they the did. The turkey, they were buying them left and right. I didn't get to go, but that's what I heard. Yeah, so maybe next year you can come. Go check them out. They're direct to consumer bossshotshells.com, and you can order everything that you want. That simple. Also, we're brought to you by Mossberg. We shot that 940 all season long. Boy, I saw a couple of over-unders they had at their booth in Nashville. You're all about Mm-mm-mm. it. Mm-mm-mm. Nice, good-looking guns. Good thing about the 940 is everything is oversized, so your buttons and your and your uh, levers, you know, you're going to be, it's going to, it's a waterfowl gun. You're you can get a hold wearing of gloves. It might be fingers a little bit cold. Everything's oversized. Easy to operate in cold weather. Mossberg.com. Mossberg.com. We are also brought to you by none other than Pacific Calls. The guys up there at Pacific Calls have got a new line of turkey calls coming out. Kill Count is going to be out this week. Jeff's eating a peppermint. Sounds real good in the microphone. Um, Check them out. PacificCustomCalls.com. Listen, we got a promo code. BHP25 will save you 25% off of checkout. Whatever you get, whether it be waterfowl calls, turkey calls, doesn't matter. You can save 25% uh, PacificCustomCalls.com. Be looking for that kill count, though, because I'm very, very excited about it. We're also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. It's time for you to get skinny. Silhouettes are the way to go. Uh, Socks, silhouettes, Dive Bomb has changed the game whenever you look at the way you set out a decoy spread. Everything, you got to get the bag so everything packs up extra nice and neat. Uh, Dive Bomb, it's an investment. Ladies and gentlemen, it's much easier to have five or ten dozen dive bombs in your trailer than it is to monkey around with full bodies all season long. They look great. They're coming out with an all new line of fully flocked decoys. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Divebombindustries.com. It's not too late to start building that spread for next year. We are also brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. Mr. Alex Langbell spent a lifetime in the first responders game. He knows what you need to keep your four-legged hunting buddy safe. Field trauma kit, we got it in every vehicle out here. Stop bleeding, Keep get warmed up, cool off. Save a lot of lives. It can, so you never know when you're going to need that thing, so just have it on hand. Have one in your vehicle, have one in your hunting bag. They've also got the quick release system. I put Lou in it every single day, tethers onto his collar, and then you just pull a little string whenever you're ready for him to go. No more dogs breaking. I hate when I see that on Instagram. Post People post these big rain outs and the dog's running out in the middle of it. Put that little fucker on the quick release system from Gun Dog Outdoors, and it might save his life. Also, we're brought to you by Shin Gear. They're not just a waiter company anymore. Bibs, well, vests, boots. Jackets. Jackets, everything. Everything. The best part about Shin Gear is every, they're, they're tailoring their stuff to be Completely waterproof. I wore their bibs all season long now that I can talk about it. Totally waterproof, totally windproof, 
hunted in a couple downpours, never got wet. Jacket, same way. Uh, they make a great product over there. And their waders are second to none. And they've got the guarantee that they will stand behind their product as long as you stand in them. So if you run into a problem, a little snag, a little burr, barbed wire, send them back, they'll fix them. Okay? Great customer service, which is lost in today's world. Jeff Jones is a great guy. Great guy, great customer service. Excellent customer service. Check them out, shingear.com. Lucky Duck. That's right. Saw Tim and Luke this last weekend in Nashville, and they have all kinds of new lines of stuff. They got a bunch of new stuff coming out. A great company. I'll tell you right now, if you put your dog in a dog kennel, it needs to be in a Lucky Duck dog kennel. That's the way Lou rides. Crash rated. Five-star crash test rated. Has a fan in there, doesn't it? Got a fan in there for his little fat ass in September and October. Flat screen TV, watch Scooby-Doo. That's all that we need. It's got a nice little bed in there. Uh, People are varmint hunting right now. They've got an incredible sound system for for varmints. And I tell you what, I want to shoot a raccoon. I saw... uh, That raccoon hunting looks fun, don't it? It does look fun. You can do it with the Lucky Duck. Just got a little tail on there, and the little bastard will just come right up. Um, best day frames on the market, the Lucky Duck 2x4 blind, and the, still have the best uh, motion decoys. Spinners, they got swimmers, they got all sorts of stuff. So whatever you're needing, if you're needing to get motion into your spread, I would check out LuckyDuck.com. They're the best. We are also brought to you by the boys up at uh, the Looking Glass Podcast. Go to Patreon, type in Looking Glass Podcast. You donate to their account, and you will get their entire library of debauchery. Uh, tell you what, Logan and Rebel are some of the best human beings on earth and they run a fantastic podcast. You need to go to Patreon right now and subscribe to their podcast. It will change your life. It will make those long drives, uh, seem like minutes. So go check them out at the Looking Glass podcast. We're also brought to you by the Hunt Proof app. Keep your hunts alive by writing them down you will regret that when you get older if you don't if i wish i'd give anything if i'd have had this from when i was younger to keep back all of my stuff i did just to keep track the records the hunts the weather what happened that day because man it just takes a little bit of reminder and you can go back and relive all them things in your mind you can post pictures to your entry so not only do you have what you've written down but if it's a special hunt and you've got a picture you can attach it to the entry also so uh, they're onto something over there at the Hunt Proof app, and you need to go set up an account right now. It's easy to find. Go to the App Store, whether you're iPhone, Android, whatever. Go to your App Store, download the Hunt Proof app, and start logging your hunts. Start logging your memories with your loved ones. We're also brought to you by Alpha Outdoors Specialties, maker of the Stanfield stool. And from what I hear, it's going to be really, really nice. And the blind caddy. And the blind caddy. They had them Saw in that Nashville. at Nashville. That's going to change the way that you sit in an A-frame. Keep your coffee, shotgun shells, keep it all out of the mud. So be looking for that from Alpha Outdoor Specialties. We're also brought to you by Bangtail Whiskey. It is not for the faint of heart. Bangtail embodies a select few who believe in hard work and relish in the opportunity to take a step back to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Whether relaxing for a midweek swallow or communing on the weekend with quality people, Bangtail is sure to provide a truly unique and tasteful experience time and time again. With Deep Southern Roots, Bangtail provides a first-class, handcrafted whiskey experience. Pour a jigger of Bangtail and enjoy. Must be 21 years or older. Brought to you by Dirty Duck. There you go. If your coffee sucks, it's not the duck. They got all kinds of new stuff. They have a copper wine glass. What? Bring one of them home for Michelle. She wanted one of those. 
They had some uh, copper coffee cups, mugs. They sold out of them before I could get one of them. And they got some really cool caps. Their, their swag is out of this world. Check out DirtyDuck.com. Coffee, they ship it all over the place. Had a guy from England message me yesterday and said, hey, will they send coffee to England? Uh, I need to call, contact Buck and find out if they do. But anyways, they will ship it anywhere and everywhere, and that's Dirty Duck. If your coffee sucks, it's not the duck. The way to go. And brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. We will have David on here on the podcast next couple weeks talk about Ducks, the event at Texas Motor Speedway in May. Uh, it's crazy that that's right around the corner yep. when you think about it. Skies are full. It's because of Ducks Unlimited. They have con- conservation. Hunters are the best conservationists. Ducks Unlimited is best, the best platform for conservation in America or in the world for that matter. So please go check out DU and look for a local event. Uh, also, we're brought to you by Double T British Kennels. If you are in the market for a new little hunting buddy this off season, I would highly recommend that you go check out Double T British Kennels. They've got fantastic dogs, whatever you're looking for. New puppy, started dog, finished dog. They've got it all. Double T British Kennels, and they've got a very, very good bloodline and cute little cute little guys. We hunted over two of his dogs this past uh, winter. Adam and Sam were two of the best, very, very well-mannered, and they were really good in the field. So Double T British Kennels is the way to go. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. We've got just maybe one. We can take on one more turkey hunter this year, one or two more. No, we're booked. We're booked. Never mind. That's gone. Uh, if you want to book for dove hunting. Yep. I've got the second weekend of dove season open September 8th. And then I can do a corporate, I can do two corporate groups during the week and one in September and one in October. I don't have the dates on me right now, but anyways, holler at us. If you're looking for a dove hunt, dove season's fixing enough to start filling in. Uh, most of it's filled in already, but I do have some dove hunting spots available. Just look us up at stanfieldhunting.com. Thank Thank y'all. God bless y'all and have a wonderful week. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of the podcast, we are joined by Kelly Powers. He is a World Goose Calling champion, champion of champions in the Outdoor Hall of Fame. The man has seen it and done it. Uh, Great, great guy and a great uh, ambassador for hunting and waterfowlers everywhere. So we hope that you enjoy this episode. Here he is, Kelly Powers. Very crucial step. That, that, and that. Okay. Welcome to the Big Hawker Podcast, brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. I'm Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. It is not too early. Start uh, getting your wheels turning, what you're going to need spread-wise, and uh, go over to the guys uh, Dive Bomb Industries and get what you're going to need. Season's going to be here before we know it. I don't know if you know it or not. We're only six months away. It's March right now. But the best season of all seasons is right around the corner, and that is turkey season. What says you, Mr. Kelly Powers? 
Oh, you know what? I was actually running a turkey call five minutes ago before I was got back in the truck to do this podcast. So, yes, absolutely. It's a one of my favorite times of the year. I don't know what it is. I think it's because, you know, we're in Texas and the weather, you know, you get a couple seasons and uh, it's going to be. But the weather's always really nice when the wind's not blowing. And I just I love being out there. I love waterfowl hunting. I love shooting ducks and geese. But there's something about turkey season. It's different. No, no doubt. You know, it's a, uh, you get, you get trees and, and things start blooming, things start coming to life and there's nothing like a turkey woods. And, and, and I just, one of my favorite times of the year, honestly, it's one of my favorite things to do. If you were to ask my son and he's 12 and, and goodness, he turkey hunt, he duck hunts with me every day, every day he's out of school. And, uh, I mean, does not miss a day and, but turkey hunting is his passion. Like he, he would rather turkey hunt than anything. And I think it's because I'm okay with losing. Like, you know, there's this notion that you, every time you go out, like you've got to, you got to kill a turkey and everything. Like I am totally fine. If I can hear a couple gobbles and kind of play that game, that chess match a little bit, my day has been made, you know, whether or not I, of course I want to pull the trigger and I want to trick him. But like, if I can just kind of play that chess match a little bit, I'm happy with it. So maybe it's just yeah. the bar is a little bit lower for me. I don't know. It's my time to relax too. See, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I grew up in a part of Tennessee where we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of turkeys back in the eighties. And and um actually our we have a farm that that river bottoms that I grew up hunting on and we were one of the first areas that actually had turkeys kind of released and, and relocated and and uh, so I was fortunate to kind of ever since I've been old enough to crawl and you know I've, I've had turkeys to hunt um and and man there were some years I remember one season I heard the first gobble on the 27th day um huh. that I hunted you know and, yeah. and and I was hunting and there were there was a flock of birds but man there was just such a small population they're not um not very vocal uh, extremely smart and it took it took towards the end of April to the first of May for them and we open around the first of April here but it took towards you know the end of season uh, for for really them to bust up good for that gobbler to get off by himself and get a little lonely because when he was with hens he's had a lot around so yeah you talk about hearing him gobble and all that man um, as a hunter no matter where you live in the in the states I mean these are the good days I mean you know and I know there's some populations maybe struggling this and that but the NWTF has done an outstanding job to create opportunity for all of us. Our population was down the last, last year it was really, really bad, but I'm telling you what, I've been, I've been kind of putting my ears out in the woods and scouting and the population has rebounded pretty well. If we can get another year, like, I don't know what happened. I guess it was, we had a little bit of moisture. We weren't just totally bone dry. We were ranked. We had a wet fall, not real wet fall, but we had some, it started raining in November a little bit and it's raining November. I don't know why, but our numbers are back up a little bit. Thank goodness, because last year it was bleak, 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 bleak. And I've never experienced this. So I, I, I primarily hunt in Texas and with Rio's in my area. And I'm, you know, preface it by saying that the roost does not shift much. Once you kind of find the roost, it'll go a hundred yards or so. Last year it was miles shifting and I've yeah. never experienced that before. Yeah. That's, that's hard. I mean, you know, there are areas I, I run a bunch of, of trail cameras on a certain time lapse. We talk about that later, but that's, I use that so much because I'm covering such a wide area and I don't, I don't have enough time in the afternoons to try to put some to roost so I can rely on technology to help me. Um, but yeah, because I, we've got areas that, um, my turkeys may be here today, a mile east tomorrow. Ooh. Um, you know, I mean a long distance and, and it just, and when they're flocked up like that, it's tough, but, I know if they're if they're at one particular spot at 
you know, six o'clock in the afternoon, I can just about tell you what tree they're going to roost in that night just because of, uh, you know, we're, I'm hunting river bottoms. So then again, they're going to roost over water. Uh, and predominantly, they're going to have a, a big enough tree, you know, generally a pin oak or an oak or a big cypress that they're going to roost in. So when I see them in a certain area, I can say, yep, they're going to be over this slough and this tree. And you can be there at daylight the next morning and you got a pretty high percentage chance. And outside of that, you kind of got to wait till the flocks bust up really good and and uh, you kind of get some gobblers that want to cro- get lonely and want to cooperate. We, uh, you know, everybody wants to be out opening day and opening weekend. I love late season turkey hunting. If you've, it, when those birds bust up and they're lonely and that's when it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I, you know, years ago when I was actually in college and even younger, I, I was, I thrived off the, I mean, if I couldn't get it done in the first 30 minutes, it was a disappointment, right? You know, because my, I always had a mindset in me that I wanted them. I wanted to be able to go out there and almost put a pie plate out there on the ground <laughs> and him land on that pie plate. Like, right. and, and, and literally, and, and there was a, I mean, I love slipping through the woods and they're still on the roost and getting in within, you know, 150 yards or so. And, and right when they, you think they're getting, it's getting close to fly down, try, try to get them to, to face you on the limb. Yeah. And if you can get them to spin down, well then 180 degrees behind them, you've eliminated. Right. So now, you know, if they're facing you, when they get ready to fly down, you look, you know, you start looking for opening spots in the woods and trying to guess where he's going to land. Uh, to me, that's what gets my adrenaline going, and that's that's the absolute best turkey hunt. But outside of that, yes, late season when they get by themselves and you actually have a little more distance and calling them in is 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 awesome as well. So you so you'll do that. So you'll you, what do you do? You like kind of gauge uh, how he sounds on the limb, whether he's facing you or facing away, and then you Absolutely. just try to hey, look at me. Yeah, and the hardest thing, the hardest thing on that, of course, I'm in Tennessee here, and and foliage is varies from year to year. Right. You know, this year, for for example, we've got a a lot of foliage early, uh, that so we're kind of in an early spring in a sense. Um, and some years though, I mean, on flat ground, goodness, uh, they can see so far away. Like it, you know, people's like, oh, you slip up on a roost. I, listen, if you're gonna slip up on an eastern on a roost and him not see you, like you've accomplished something, <laughs> because I mean, you're 150 yards, 200 yards out, uh, in an open woods. It's almost dang near impossible, you know, um, but I like to get up. My main distance is when he hits the ground, you're within that. I want to be within that 100-yard range when he lands okay. because then my odds of calling him another 55, 60 yards, 70 yards are are greatly increased uh, because what happens is as soon as he hits the ground, he knows where his hens are at, and he's going to walk under their tree where they're at. But if I'm already within that 100-yard range, well, then he's he'll, he'll venture out 50, 60 yards looking for me, and at that point, you can, you know, bring them in the rest of the way. So it's a cat mouse game and you got to really, um, you got to really rely on the woods. I mean, if you're in a short woods or if there's short woods between you, he's going to sound a lot farther than what he really is. If you're in an open woods, same thing, you know, you got to be very careful and, and, uh, just kind of be aware. And I'll always like to keep trees in between me and him when I'm starting to, you know, get that last hundred yards and, and just always stop by a tree where you're not pinned out in the open. Right. Um, and just kind of, just use smart woodsmanship, and then, and at that point, just slip down beside a tree and and uh, sits tight for a little while. And then, when it you think he's going to start uh, getting ready to fly down, I'll try to do a you know fly down at him or or, or do something to get his attention because I want him to flip around on that limb facing me. Um, and if you could get him flip around on the limb, then you're you're pretty good odds because that way when he pitches out, he's going to cover another forty yards. I've never chased Easterns. We're going to Michigan and Tennessee at the end of April. We're we're filming a, a show for uh, Boss Shot Shells, 
and uh, we're going to be in Michigan and Tennessee. So that's going to be my first time with Easterns. But I've always heard like they're notorious for just being these quiet little critters that, yeah. uh, you know, they don't gobble. I'm used to Rios. Like you fart loud enough, and you're going to get a gobble back out of a out of a Rio. But uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about the new uh, the new challenge. So we'll see. Yeah, it's it's they are they're special, man. I'm I'm partial to Easterns as well. And they can be tough and they can be easy. Um, and there's, there's no shame in leaving a tough turkey to go find a two-year-old that's easier to hunt. There's no shame in that at all. What, it's, it's lost on what si- I'm not a turkey hunter. I've never shot a turkey in my life. So this, if I shoot one this spring will be my first turkey ever. He might just start with an Eastern. And, uh, nice. what are they bigger than Rio's Kelly? Um, uh, I believe, yes, a little heavier in weight. Um, I believe Rio's are a little longer legs. Correct. If, correct me if I'm wrong, biologically, I think they're a little taller. Um, I, I know the Osceola's are as well, uh, but Rio's generally can be a little, or I'm sorry, Easterns can be a little heavier. Um, Rio's are more vocal, generally are, and I've hunted Rio's as well, generally can be a little, I, I don't want to use the term easier because it's such a broad brush, you yeah. know, because listen, I've shot a lot of really easy, dumb Easterns, but as a general rule, Easterns are a little harder um, as a general rule. But there's, you know, Coach Strickland said it best. There's no absolutes in turkey hunting. And I can't, so you can't paint that with a broad brush because there are some Rios that are tough birds and they've gotten educated and tough to hunt. Um, it's, and the same thing with Easterns. Um, but in generalistic terms, a lot of times your Easterns can be a little little tougher tactics, I, I should say. And then I also like mid-morning. I love mid-morning. When they get away yeah. from, because I've noticed here, there's so many dadgum hens. And I mean, it's just, you're, you're, you're pissing in the wind, basically. Like when he's got five or six girls around him, he's not. He's done for a little bit. So, yeah, yep. uh, yep. they're going to go off to build nests and stuff at you know mid morning, and they'll start walking faster, and he starts walking slow. Next thing you know, he's by himself. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we were talking Tennessee football earlier. What uh, that that hooker kid? He's a senior, yeah. isn't he? He's out. Is he going to I the th- draft? Yeah. Th- he is. He's he's draft eligible. He's he is. Uh, actually, I was reading an article this morning that, um, you know, there are what team was looking at him. I'm trying to think. I mean, of course, you there, you see all kind of speculation and this and that, but potential late first round, which I would be very shocked. Um, but man, I hope he. I'm telling you, man, when he's healthy, um, and I know he's in a favorable offense, but still, man, his 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 touchdown to interception ratio was pretty impressive. Um, and not only that, a high character athlete, and that's you know the the hard hard to beat. The problem we're dealing, or that we're not dealing with it because we're not idiots. With some billionaires are not very smart. I've noticed, and NFL owners the worst. They draft people that have zero chance of being an yeah. NFL quarterback, and it happens every single year. If you're an NFL team right now and you're drafting a quarterback, and you don't take the kid from Ohio State with the first pick, you're a fool. He is the I by agree. far the best college quarterback out there. Someone is going to take Anthony Richardson right off the bat because he's six foot four and he won the underwear Olympics. I don't care if he won the underwear Olympics or not. It happens every single year. You're not dealing with the Donovan McNabb. You're not dealing with the Michael Vick. You're dealing with a guy at Florida that could not win basically. Yeah. And so it's not going to change in the pros. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And it baffles me because Will Levis with Kentucky and and I and, and a great athlete, all that, but for Mel Kuyper had him projected, you know, go number one. And golly, and and I and I know Kentucky struggled on the offensive line and this and that, but 
goodness, he was he was given the reins. He was given the ball. Um, and time and time again, like through bad choices, interception, and I don't know, it's just hard to overlook that. And regardless of measurables, and it's hard for me to, uh, like I say, you get in, try to get into the minds of some of these GMs, but how could they only look at measurables and not look at on-the-field performance? Yeah, you're, Sometimes more my mind. It's a football player you're trying to draft, and they do it all the time. I'll give you two examples. One thing I would do right now, and I'm not a general manager for NFL. If I was the Indianapolis Colts general manager, I would call the Baltimore Ravens. And first, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a, I'm not a Lamar Jackson guy because I don't think Lamar Jackson's ever going to put you in the Super Bowl. Never. I don't think he's that good a quarterback. He's, he's, a, he's a running back that can throw the ball is all he is. He should be in a single-wing offense. I, if I was Indianapolis, instead of trying to take Will Levis – or the short kid from Alabama, which is going to be another Kyler Murray. Yep. As soon as he gets his legs hurt, he's done. Go out and yep. trade your first-round pick and next year's first-round pick and draft or and, and trade for Lamar Jackson. Or wait yep. until after the draft's over and draft who you want, who's the best player available at number one, which is probably that defensive tackle. Draft that kid yep. and then trade next year's first round pick for Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson and Baltimore are so fractured they're never going to have it. They're, he's not playing for them ever again. It's the same with yeah. it's the same with Aaron Rodgers. The Jets and Aaron Rodgers have got Green Bay over a barrel. Green Bay don't think they do. If I was the Jets, I'd say fine. We don't want him. Pay him sixty million dollars. They don't want to pay him sixty. So they're either going to release him or they're going to take a fifth round pick for him just to get rid of him. Same with yeah. same with Lamar Jackson. Make Baltimore trade you to him because if Lamar Jackson goes to Indy with him and Jonathan Taylor, they're a 10 12 win team probably. They're not going to be in the Super Bowl, but That's they're true. not going to be in the Super Bowl regardless. That's true. Yep, that is true. No, that's a, that's a good point. This has uh, Hendon going to the Vikings, is what they're saying. That's what, yeah, I read that this morning. So he would be back up for Cousins and. Um, could learn under that. That's I mean, not that's a, a bad. That's not a bad way hey, to go. Patrick like Mahomes that. sat yep. behind someone for a year, so sit behind somebody for a year yeah. is probably really good for you. Yeah, he would be a he would be a good safe backup that's going to learn the system, high character. Um, yeah, that's and interesting. I don't know. I don't know where we've gotten in the NFL to where it's like if if the guy didn't start year one, it's you know teams frown upon that. Let him sit for a year or two or however long it takes and learn the ins and outs of how to become an NFL quarterback. Learn how to study. Learn how to read defense. It's the only position that you need to be able to sit on the bench for a year. If you get a defensive tackle first round and he ain't playing right now, you wasted your pick. But if you get a quarterback, he needs to sit a year. Um, The kid from TCU is going to be a late-round draft. Somebody's going to pick him up in the fourth, fifth, or sixth round. And that kid's a really good quarterback, and he's a winner. And 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 and, yep. and he's a gamer, and so I think if he yep. goes somewhere, I could see him sitting on the bench for a couple of years and being a player. Look at Brock yep. Purdy, same way. Yeah. Same way, yep, same way. You know, uh, the the 49ers got uh, Jawan Jennings. I believe he was their last pick in a, in a late round, and and of course that was back when Tennessee was really struggling. But you know, he has that he has that fight in him. He has that dog in him. And and goodness, he was the one that caught the hail mary pass over the win against Georgia years ago. And and w- it, without a doubt, Tennessee fans could have told you this: you throw a hail mary up, and and you've got a wide receiver. Jawan Jennings is coming down with right. the ball. I mean, it's, it's he's just he's got that fight. He's tough, and 
So yeah, and you know, and and people might have thought that was kind of a little bit of a risk with the 49ers, and now look where he, I mean, he's he's there. I mean, he's just a, it, it, he just has it. Now his measurables may not line up as good, but man, he's got that fight. He's just a tough. tough I felt guy. bad for because, like I said, I, one of my good friends, he graduated from Tennessee and lifelong Vols fan, and I was really, really rooting for them last year. And when that Hooker kid got hurt, like it just it it changed yeah. everything. Yeah, it it was. Um, I mean, you hate to see that. Even your rival, it doesn't matter who it right. is. You know, if it's a team that's your rival, you don't want to see anybody get hurt. And for for Hooker to get hurt, it was, yeah, it was kind of it was gut wrenching. It was a tough tough to see because you wanted the wanted the team to do well, but not only that, you know. But you know, with Tennessee's standpoint, I mean, gosh, I mean, the, with Joe Milton as a backup, and this guy's got a cannon, and he's got all the measurables. Like goodness, if he. You know, this time last year, Hendon Hooker was kind of a big question mark. He transferred in from Virginia Tech. Nobody really knew what you know where he was going to be, and and then so now here Joe Milton was that truthfully, I think it's a good story in itself that um, this kid could have left, had all the right to leave, uh, could have started for any other a, a lot of programs. Let me say that you know he uh, came from Michigan and started at Michigan for half of their season, um, transferred into Tennessee, and last year he could have left, but. Him and Hendon Hooker become best friends. They room together, and and uh, he was his backup, um, and because he knew the writing was on the wall that he was in a good system with Josh Heupel, mm-hmm. uh, and then his senior year he's going to have the reins, um, and you know it, that's that's a good story in itself because the the NIL days and this and that he could have easily left, uh, but he he bid his time, learned more of the system, and on paper, I mean, man, his stock has to be good going into next year's draft because. He's in a system to where he can really show out, um, and if he does, like he's in the driver's seat to be a good high round, you know. Draft well, I was always going against Tennessee because all I heard was Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning from <laughs> from Andy's, from our friend Ryan. That's all we ever used to hear about, and I got so sick and tired of that shit. So I always was against Tennessee. Then I started feeling sorry for Tennessee because they've been on the bottom, and then I was so happy when they beat Alabama this year. But all my okay. friends in Oklahoma say Hopple's going to go to OU in a year or so. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, but apparently, and I don't, you guys may know more about this than I, but there's a lot bad, of bad, bad blood. Bliss. I mean, with yeah. him and Steve, like, they're like, there is no way he would even attempt to go back. So I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, uh, he's done, he's, he's a bright off. Where is mind, he from? Where did he grow up at? Was it Iowa? So he's not in Am Oklahoma. I, he didn't correct? grow up in not Oklahoma. Or South, I think South, South Dakota. I think is that you right? are right. Yeah, let me. Aberdeen, South Dakota. That's a okay. chance he'll stay in Tennessee. But those people in Oklahoma, they breed different. So once in Oklahoma, yeah. <laughs> they can't figure out how to get out of there sometimes. So uh, I got, yeah, what? I can sense a little rivalry there. Maybe Texas area, Oklahoma. Uh, University of Oklahoma <laughs> is the University of Texas at Norman. They just don't call it that, okay. but that's what it should be. <laughs> All their recruits are from the Lone Star State, most of them. They, Texas uh. and Oklahoma – I think bit off more than they really want to chew. I think about every three years, one of them is going to have a really good team. They have the athletes to play in the SEC. (laughs) They do. Both of them do. But what they've done is they've opened the Big 12 up for TCU, Tech, Oklahoma State, Baylor to be in the um, playoffs because about every three years, one of them teams is going to have a really good, good, solid football team. But I think Texas and Oklahoma, the reality of what they're fixing to go through is not what they're expecting, I think. Yeah, it's a little different when you're doing it every Saturday. You know, it's it's a it's a grind. Um, and granted, you know, there's you've got your you've got your you know easy team some 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 sort, and then but still, it's a tough 
there's still, a, I mean, goodness, Tennessee schedule, you know, Alabama, Georgia, on the road at LSU, uh, Florida. I mean, I can go, you know, and it's just, you keep doing that. And, and uh, um, out of conference, actually, we were supposed to play Oklahoma next season um, at, in Neyland. And, but now since they're joining the SEC, obviously that was, that game has been opted out or, you know, canceled by the conference. Uh, and I believe Tennessee just added NC State. They're going to start uh, next, not this coming season, but the next season. They'll start them in Charlotte. Well, when you go to the, when you go through the Big Twelve and you go to the stadiums and you go to, you take out Texas and Oklahoma Stadium, yeah. and I'm going to say Oklahoma State also because Oklahoma State has a really good venue. Texas Tech holds what sixty thousand people, sixty five thousand maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to the SEC game, everybody's eighty thousand people right on top of you. Yeah, it's a yeah. It, we, even if you go to Kentucky. Or if you go to Vanderbilt, I'm assuming Vanderbilt sells out all their games, don't they? Uh, they're they're probably the least out of out of all the SEC schools. Uh, I can tell you this: when Tennessee plays at Vandy, it's it's about a seventy percent Tennessee crowd. I figured it was that uh, way. But, most everybody that played yeah, there. But now I will well to give you credit. You know Vanderbilt, not just in recent last two years, but prior to that, especially when you know James Franklin was there. Man, he he turned Vanderbilt into a crew. Yeah, Great he coach. turned into a a respectful program and and like you say fan bases crowd and you know i was there when when oklahoma played um but uh, when baker mayfield uh, I, I mean we we've got season tickets and and i'm on the first row of the upper deck so i've got a bar right there and i mean he was right below me when he in overtime when he ran in the touchdown but you know his center was even saying you know, i think it was quoted in the media that the ball was shaking i mean you got 100 <laughs> 102 fans um you know it is a uh, it's a different dynamic and if you haven't been a part of that uh, man, y'all, I'm telling you, Neyland Stadium, and I, I've said this, and I've been to other, I've, I've been to Norman and different other, you know, stadiums, and of course, Death Valley and, and Louisiana and LSU is the same thing, and but Neyland Stadium, when it's rocking, it's a tar, it's hard to beat. Neyland Stadium at night is a very intimidating place to play, but you got to have the right opponent. I mean, you got to have a, a rival. You saw that like with the Alabama game last year. Yes. Goodness gracious, man! Like, uh, wh- unfortunately, my brother and the rest of my family was there. <laughs> And, and I was in Canada, so we were watching it on a TV and and uh, hooping and hollering and all that. But it is a different different dynamic. And and I were like I said when Oklahoma played and Baker Mayfield, he in overtime I watched him run the touchdown in right right below us. Yeah, you know, well, SEC. His quotes about it, it was impressive. SEC college football is at a different pedestal. It's like Texas high school football. Until you experience, yeah. it's like going to Fenway Park and watching a major league baseball game. There's certain places, yep. but anywhere in the SEC. Is is a is a unique place, and you can't ma- you you just don't get it anywhere else. You might have a game here or there with some rivalries big, but the, the every conference game is huge there. And I think Texas and Oklahoma are going to see the difference between going to Baylor or going to Lubbock yeah. when you're going to Ole Miss and you're going to Tennessee and you're going to LSU. Yeah, that's a, and that's a good analogy. I haven't heard that before, but you know, it's like comparing Tennessee high school football to Texas football, high school football. Right. You know, Texas high school football is in a class of its own. Uh, stadiums are bigger. The fan, I mean, it's almost like, you know, many college teams uh, there. And and uh, that's right. And and SEC football compared to most other conferences, it, it's just a different, it's, it's just, it, you know, they, they, they use the term, it just means more. And, and it's, man, it's some passionate fan bases, but a little bit of history about that too. You know, in the Southeast, historically, when I grew up, I mean, we everybody followed college football. It wasn't you didn't have a whole lot of NFL fans. Right. Um, you didn't have that like you have in the Northeast and and way out west. 
Um, and then when the Titans moved to Nashville, or you know, were the Oilers then, you started getting a little bit more of that. Um, and of course, you had the St. Louis, you know, the Rams in St. Louis, and of course, then they moved out. But before that, like it wasn't a whole lot of big, passionate fan bases that followed the NFL. It was all college football. And I mean, you look at just the state of Alabama and Georgia right there side by side. You've got Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, and Tennessee within just a couple hour drive of each other. Uh, I mean, it's a it's it's a pretty passionate area to live in. Texas Tech Stadium will hold sixty thousand, and Neyland Stadium's what one hundred two, I think one hundred two four fifty five, one hundred two thousand. That's pretty common number. Yeah. You got well, that since, down. Since we're talking Tennessee, I want to switch over to the Titans real quick. Uh oh. Yeah. They're wanting to get rid of Derrick Henry. I don't understand that, but I don't understand why anybody would trade a lot for running back with a lot of miles on him, and I think he still has it. But yeah, but he might just have it for one more year. I mean, you're not going to trade the house for him. If you gave him a fifth round draft pick for it, Tennessee might be coming out way ahead. But yeah, that's a tough yeah, deal. But he makes a lot of money. He's he's yeah, he makes a lot. And and apparently, you know, running backs or when they get to that age are disposable, apparently. And, and I, I don't but I'm like you. I think he's got a lot of uh, he's still got a few good years ahead of him. Um, so I, I don't know, man, there's such a. Ooh, it's it's a tough it's a tough one to follow there you know and we're uh, I want to follow the Titans and we do and I you know but it's it's uh I don't know it's a that's a hard one I can't can't put my finger on it <laughs> I don't understand they traded AJ Brown their best wide receiver yeah they're gonna get rid of Derrick Henry they didn't make a uh, who's their uh, D- uh, Dupree Marcus Dupree was that his name or Bud yeah, Dupree um, Bud Dupree. Yeah, Bud Dupree they let him they're gonna let him walk I just don't understand yep. what they're telling their fan base. I think they're. I think it's almost like we're going to gut everything and all literally start over from scratch. Well, they were so close, though. That's what's sad. I know. I know. They were so close, and 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 the, um, uh, you know, when the oh gosh, Brown, when they traded him, yeah. you know, uh, it was a, um, uh, that was a tough deal. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, that's that's a deal where I don't see them, Derrick Henry. Ah, I see them keeping him just from the fan base standpoint, but but I I don't know I don't I don't get paid the big bucks to make that make that decision. Jacksonville will be in a Super Bowl in the next three years, I think. Yeah, I mean, they look good. That, they do. Trevor Lawrence, he, he's so. he looks awesome. Etienne looks good. Yeah. Now they got Calvin Ridley going to be suiting up for him this year. Christian yeah. Kirk, they got. Yep. I mean that's they're 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 freaking loaded. They got a great defense. They've drafted well. I, th- I really think I think Jacksonville's the one be the one that's going to break through in the AFC next. Yeah, and you know at some point you think the bill I don't know you know you want to see but their windows closing. Uh, yeah, they are their windows closing and 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 I I don't it's crazy I'll say this but Josh Allen's looked a little vulnerable mm-hmm. when it got to the big games and and um, so I kind of compare that I'll, I'll throw that back to his college days you know you you come from wyoming has all the measurables but now you get in big games there seems a little bit of inexperience i don't want to say inexperience that's not the right term but vulnerable is more than anything it just i don't know it, it's just there are times that he did not step far step ahead where someone like patrick mahomes become a leader and won the game well he didn't he don't play defense and they lost the game because of the defense not that's, because of josh well, allen well jo- that is a good point josh allen to me seems kind of like a throwback to like this he's a bigger brett Favre, but like he still kind of has that gunslinger mentality and you know you never know what josh allen's gonna do they need to make a trade for derrick henry because they're running back poor 
And what would that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Goodness gracious, Josh Allen and Derrick Henry. Patrick Mahomes, like you just, it's almost annoying. He's good. It's almost annoying how, like you know, if he's got a minute and a half and a timeout in his pocket, he's going to drive the field on you. Like you just know. Like with Josh Allen, you're like, "Eh, it's not a for sure thing. And something needs to be said. I, I mean, I can I can relate this in calling competition world. You know, in any kind of competitive sports, when you've been when you've been somewhat in that position and you've won and you expect to win, uh, it, it's so much of this game is mental yeah. and mental preparation. And when you get in those moments, you know, you're playing to win, not playing it right. safe. Uh, and and Patrick Mahomes takes those risks because he knows he's fixing to win the game. Uh, and I think when it Josh Allen gets in those situations. There's a little bit of a mental aspect there of a little bit of a timidness. Uh, I'm afraid of making mistakes and not playing to win. Uh, I don't know. That's my obviously my opinion, you know, but uh, I think he's an outstanding athlete. Sure. And, and I kind of selfishly I was rooting for him this year uh, just because I want to see him do well. But I do agree with you. It's not fair to put that on his shoulders. I mean, that's a that's a team deal and a, and, and, and a defense kind of let them down in some sense. Uh, but at the end of the day, I still think my point holds true that when you won and you've been there, uh, it's a reason why you see Super Bowl champions kind of when they get back in the playoffs and they're still there. They're they're a tough out yeah. because they're used to winning and they expect to make it back to the Super Bowl. I think Von Miller getting hurt killed them this year. Probably that really yeah. changed the whole dynamics. When he was there, they were looking at what they were like eight and two, and they were looking like they were the team to beat. And uh, they just never ever recovered because they, they, their defense couldn't put pressure on, and they used to be so good defensively. Yeah, that guy's done a hell yeah. of a job coaching there, and um, yeah. it, it's it's made for exciting football. So, so no you know, going back to the calling uh, world, um, when did you when did you turn the switch? Because you won in what ninety nine, right? That was the year, correct? And then and then they get in two thousand, the champion of champions. Yep. So when did it all switch for you to where you started like playing to win and not just playing to uh, get your top so, finish? So you know, I when I was in the mid '90s and I was in school and I in '97, um, actually I graduated high school in '97 and and I, you know, I told my parents and this is a crazy, I call it a redneck dream, uh, but but uh, I always had this idea that I, I number one I wanted to do something in the outdoor industry. Uh, did not care what it was, whether it was an outdoor rep and, and product design. I wanted to do something because my passion was outdoors, hunting, turkey hunting, waterfowl hunting, all of that. Um, and for some crazy idea, I thought, you know, if I could win a calling contest, that would help uh, on my resume. It might, you know, I would. I wanted to walk into a door of a business in the outdoor industry and them knew who I was before the door opened. Right. Um, that was my go. And and the path to that was to win calling contests and which is crazy and kind of whatever. But not only that, like I wanted, it's just a part of me. Like if, if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best. I want to do it. You know, it's a competitive spirit. I think all of us kind of have in some sense. Um, so in 97, that was kind of my dream. And I called it my first contest that summer. Um, and I come in fourth place actually is in Ballard County, Kentucky. Uh, and there were some heavy hitters there. And I kind of thought there's something here. Uh, I went to the world in 98 um, and at that time, I was blowing a, a Tim Grounds flute call, the old guy's best. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and I went and I won, or I'm sorry, I uh, went up there. And I think I don't. I think I came in the bottom five. I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> like I mean, I got my teeth kicked in. Like you know, it was awful. Well, then there was a particular time. You know, after that, 
I watched uh, the, the guys that, that were at the top were blowing, you know, top two were blowing short reads. And I realized like, man, now wait a minute. Now this is down my alley. Like I can do this and I could blow a short read, but I can use flute style techniques and make certain sounds with flutes and moans and the way you roll in your clucks and this and that. I can use those, but transfer laid it over to a short recall. I can go fast. And I, I saw right quick, I felt like I could do that better than what they were doing. Um, and that's just my competitive spirit. It's not a not a degrade on them. Um, and something happened in that that after that contest to where you know initial reactions when you get beat and don't don't kid yourselves. I mean, I got my teeth kicked in. It wasn't it wasn't that I wasn't just or you know it wasn't a, a raw deal or I got judged wrong. No, I got beat and I got beat bad. Um, you know, and initially there's a little bit of pushback like oh they just don't like my style or they just don't like this and. You know, there's a natural tendency to be a little sore loser, but something happened that summer after that to where I realized that, you know, just because something doesn't go right in life, um, you need to view that as an opportunity, not as a disappointment. And I took that as like, all right, here's my opportunity to take something wrong and what can I do to win? Um, and then so I, I went that whole summer when I got back and and the, the following summer, like I say, and um, I've had a big upbringing in and um, and percussion and and band and stuff like that. So I, I've always felt like in calling contests, which doesn't matter, duck call, goose call, turkey call, there's a lack of a standardization from a musical note standpoint. You know, I can I can go and grab a um, a piece, uh, you know, on, on the piano and and I can read music and and you know, and none of that exists in calling in calling world. Uh, it's a void. There's no standardization. There's nobody writing notes. There's nobody, you know, none of that happens. And I, I'm hoping I may be dead and gone. And somebody says, well, Kelly was screaming for this back then, but it's a musical instrument, just like a trumpet, like a drum, like a whatever. So um, I went back and I literally wrote down my winning routine uh, on a sheet of notebook paper, note for note, you know, like, you know, hell cluck, low, lower pitch cluck, cluck, you know, all of that. I mean, it was the boringest thing to read, uh, but I wrote that out. And then I started putting it together and then, and then I just through the percussion world and learning that, you know, I would always, and, and I've always stressed to people that I've tried to help coach and whatever after since then. But when you practice, don't practice, you know, the brain can only comprehend so much. It's so, you know, it's so much. So, so many callers would try to practice their whole routine and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just tell them only practice on like segments. So let's, let's just consider your first 20 seconds of your routine. That's all I'm going to work on. Not today not tomorrow, but all week. All I'm going to do when I first pick that call up, I want to maximize my time practicing. So I'm going to go in, I'm going to blow just this intro segment for the first 20 seconds, and then I'm going to do it again. Then I'm going to do it again and then master that. Well, then two weeks later, I'm going to pick up the next section and I'm going to do that. And then I literally would not blow that final routine until I was about a month out for the world contest. And then a month out, then I started taking those segments and then creating my transition points and putting those together. And then at that point, it was like a song that you know the chorus to real well. Uh, it was second nature. Um, and when you do that and you know it that well, when you mess up and you make a mistake, you can disguise it because you're so used to what you're doing. And I could do other things and hide it. And I should have been cut, but I've done well. But um, So I did it that summer. And then, like I said, I went and at that at, at that time, it was the largest margin the world was ever won by, and that was in in '99. Um, and then I went back the next year, which was the champion of champions that only former world champions can call in. 
uh, I didn't honestly, Josh Newaller was won the junior world three times, senior world three times. And I felt like he was heavily favored. Um, and, and I, I won the champion of champions. So then I'm like, well, great. Now I'm done with the world. Cause you can't call, they won't let you call it anymore. Um, and then after that, fortunately, all the other contests, you could still call in that weren't affiliated with the world. There's not a qualification standpoint. So I just kind of set a go. I want to win them all. You know, I wanted, if I were to rank the top 10, I wanted to do that. And so I went on and won the world open, the North American masters, the international, the, I mean, it just, the U S open twice world team with two different teams twice. So that's kind of something that I just did. And I, I, I did that all the way until I think the last contest I called in, I won the world duck in 2008. I, I won it for the world meat duck, I should say. Um, and, and I won it for, I don't know, like four years in a row. And then it changed the name to the Illinois state meat duck. I think the last year I won it and, and that was it, you know, and, and, uh, but I say all that to say this and I, you know, I just kind of, you know, we, what well, I say, and we, you know, with TV shows, we film hunting shows and you guys do as well. You know, we show the edited stuff, yeah. you know, and, and that's what the, that's what the consumer sees and the viewer sees. And what I just told you were the highlights in a sense, you know, what I didn't tell you were the times that I did get my teeth kicked in and I got beat. Um, and I've told this to people, I said, man, every time I get beat, like, when I ride on the ride home, I'm writing down notes because I'm coming after you the next contest. I'm writing down notes of how to be better. And then when I win the next weekend, guess what I'm doing on the way home? Notes. I'm not stopping writing down notes of how I can be better. Yeah. You know, it was just, that was what was driving me, you know, to do that. But just because something doesn't go right, man, just look for the opportunity because it's right there in front of you. I understand why they put a, you know, a limit on how many worlds you can win. I understand but I don't know that I agree with it. I mean, you're ta- you're not going to set Tom Brady down and say, well, hold on, Tom, you've won three, you're done. But, yep. but you know, you don't want this. You don't want the same guys winning over and over again. But at some point, you also got to say, like, well, just beat them. The people that don't win, yeah. they'll whine. It's the world we live in nowadays. Yeah. I would have loved, yes, I would have loved to compete against, you know, um, but grounds. You know, Tim was, was retired. Of course, I competed against him a ton but i would love to be on the world stage doing that you know and and not be retired and and there's multiple others out there too that you know to do that um i agree with you it's just kind of a precedent that's set and kind of tradition and it's kind of stuck with it but i real think most callers kind of feel the same way that you do right i mean you know if you're gonna be the best at something, then have to beat the best. Well, it's not just that. It's like you know, yeah. th- there's always these debates. Well, like who would beat who, and who would beat this guy? Well, like you could a- just don't have these guys time out or win out, and you can yeah. you can decide it on the biggest stage that there is in calling competitions. Yeah, and listen, and that, and you know, and you get, and I get asked that a bunch too, and like this and that, and there's a handful of guys that listen. I, I mean, the competitive spirit with me is like, oh, when I'm at my best, absolutely, I, I beat them all. Right. You know, that's. That's the competitive spirits, but I'd be lying if I told you that like I wouldn't have my work cut out for me for a for a handful of them, you know, because when they're at their best, they're a handful. Like, um, like, and 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 that's highly respectful of. I mean, I have the utmost respect for them, you know. And and because uh, at the end of the day, man, when we we're off that stage, just some of my best friends, yeah. you know what I mean. And granted, I want to beat them, and I'm just competitive and this and that, and and uh, but but when it's all said and done, man, like like. I'm, I'm hoping they're doing well, their family's doing well. And, you know, and, and, uh, it, it's a different thing, but yeah, you give, you give some talent grounds is the prime example. And he's probably the best that I've ever, you know, and, and 
for for me to be blessed to be with Tim, you know, and and to spend so much time with him, I you don't realize what you you don't realize what you have until someone's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so true. And, and, and I didn't realize that. And, and you realize it now, but you know, Tim's a prime example before the international, when he won the international, um, and I actually, I come in second, it's my best, it's my best second place finish ever, it, it, you know, and, and Tim won the international. But what was funny up to that, we always told Tim, like, Tim, if you could consistently put a routine together and do that for three straight routines, because Tim would normally just go off the wall and do crazy stuff and never really have some sort of consistency to him. And you never knew what you're going to get. But like, if you would just practice, you know, and, and at the time we were blowing the warning guts and he started doing that as well. And like, nobody can beat you. Like, cause the talent is, is there. It's just, it goes back to the football discussion we had earlier. It's the mental. Now there's the mental game, right? You have to be so and, and contest calling is no different. It's 90% mental, 10% application. And if you get mentally in the right mindset, and all these different things that you can do, like Tim has the talent to when that 10% is needed, like nobody can touch him. And, and he showed that at the international is one of the greatest experiences I've been across. Um, I remember Hunter was a little bitty and tearing up and his dad, I mean, it, an awesome scenery, you know, but to see Tim win that, like it, it's just the perfect example of that. So there are guys out there and, and let's not kid ourselves. There are guys out there that do not even contest call. If I could go and help maybe coach them on just some pointers of what to do in calling competitions, they would be tough to beat. Right. You don't have to be a contest caller just because they're that talented. Right. And and so so you would have to coach them on the mental aspect because you know they got the 10% of the application part that they can do it, do the notes. It's just the mental aspect that they can do it. And and there's been countless guys that that I've been fortunate to help since I retired, you know, that have gone on and done well. And and uh, it's a you know, Kyle, you introduced me to him and Kyle is mm-hmm. no different. Like Oh my gosh, all the talent in the world, you know, and it's just, but there's a mental aspect and there's different things that you just, you can kind of paint the picture of. Um, and like I always told Kyle, I was like, listen, just because I'm going to push you and I might make you mad, but I'm going to keep pushing you. But at the end of the day, just because I said, say it, I want you to be original as well. Collectively, a team is way better than an individual going solo. And, and if you, if you have a team aspect to it and you take criticism and try to like, you can become an unstoppable force. Who, and who hate. who got you into calling? Oh gosh! So I grew up. I've got two older brothers. Uh, my oldest brother um, uh, is 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 an out, unbelievable duck hunter and, and goose caller as well, but awesome duck caller. Um, I would say them. And then from a contest calling standpoint, uh, Trent Allman, which he did some stuff for Night and Hail. Trent's one of the. I mean, he is an absolute unbelievable hunter, outdoorsman. It doesn't matter what he's doing. Um, and we all have friends like that, that it doesn't matter turkey hunting, crappie fishing, whatever, like you got it. Like you're an outdoorsman. You're going to figure it out whether if you got a, if you got a will or your own can't call out of some cane, you're going to do it. And you're going to kill it. You know, and I always use the terminology. If my survival depended on killing this turkey this afternoon, then, then I'm going to hand Trent the gun and the call <laughs> because, you know, it, I mean, that's true, you know, and, and so I grew up with people around that that were just outstanding, you know. And so Trent did some calling and contest calling. Um, he placed in the top five at the at the World Open and all that. So he's one that really he was like a brother to me growing up because him and my middle brother Trent were the same age. And so I, I mean, every weekend Trent's at the house and we're, to, I mean, even all during the week we're doing things together. So 
I grew up in that environment. And I can tell you this, when, when I was old enough to even walk and start hunting, I mean, you didn't miss a, a single day of duck season. You have a 60 day duck season. Like if you miss, it's a sin. And I, I'm not, I'm just being honest. Like you're, you're getting picked on, you sleep in, like you're getting ragged and made fun of and like, oh, you don't care. You know, you just sleep, you know, sleep in, you stay out all night. You know, that was, that's what I grew up around. Like you didn't miss a single day of duck season. And and I mean, even like I, when our high school, when they had the zero tolerance, you know, you can't bring firearms and all this. Of course, it's a different environment now, unfortunately. But, you know, we all, all the time I had the shotgun in my truck. Yeah. You know, because I duck hunted that morning. I could leave the duck blind at 7.30 in the morning and be in school at about 7.50. And then every day at 3 o'clock, I left it. I mean, I'm running out of the school at 3, and I'm back in the duck blind by about 3.20. And it's every single day. So, you know, and that's that's how I grew up. And like I said, and, and my oldest brother today, I mean, we, we, come, we come from a farming background. So farming and hunting, waterfowl hunting kind of go together where you, you know, the occupation where you can kind of do that. Um and my oldest brother, even to this day, I mean, listen, if he's not duck hunting, like something's bad, like <laughs> he's in a hospital and that's it, it. And it doesn't matter as bad as the hunting is. That's so I grew up in that culture and that environment and, and, uh, it, it's helped mold me. And of course, now that I've gotten older and have kids, you know, priorities and there are times that, you know, you, you can't go or you, you know, different things, or you try to play the weather and go on, you know, but you're still hunting for the most part. You're for sure you're involved in it every day whether it's checking on a blind or or i mean it's just a it's a it's an everyday deal that's that's like i said that's the culture i grew up around how um uh, is the hunting from brian and matt sullivan all i hear is how bad the hunting is now in that area <laughs> is it as bad down there is it is they it's always over yes, it's over it it's is. over and, oh, that's, a, that's a blast from the past the sullivan's uh those are another those are another two guys that come from a mode that was Oh goodness. They come from, they come from even with, I guess you could say from the grounds pedigree. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to your question in a minute. I will say this, there is a, I use the terminology and, and, and I wish I come up with it. Somebody, I saw it online, but you know, said if, you know, if Tim grounds was an oak, if, if the waterfowl hunting was, was a tree, Tim grounds, you know, or was an oak tree, Tim grounds would be the trunk. Right. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. And, you look at the Sullivans and they kind of come from that pedigree and you got Rometas and Lanhams and I mean, Scray Stevens. And I mean, it, it's a, it's a who's who's list uh, that, that kind of collaborated with Tim and you go even for zinc and full. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So you mentioned Sullivan, it kind of, that's a, a, a path down memory road there of, of fun times and fun, funny stories. But um, yes, when they say the duck hunting in this area, I will say goose hunting, Southern Illinois. Yes. It's a very sad state. Um, used to be the, they claimed as the Canada goose hunting capital of the world there at Marion, Illinois and Crab Orchard. Um, and I saw the very tail end of that when it, you know, in the, in the mid nineties. Um, and then after that, it really fell off a cliff. Um, but outside of that, you know, it right now it's, you've got resident Canada's and you don't got a lot of migratory geese anymore. And it's a sad situation because, you know, you'll still drive by a lot of the old clubs and they still probably have some pits in the ground, but used to, I mean, these were some, I mean, unbelievable places. Um, and, and where Sullivan came from, both of them is they come from a pedigree to where it was that we call it power hunting. I mean, it was big spreads, a lot of calling. And, and when you have that amount of creativity, uh, 
entrepreneurial as far as designing products because they want to be better than the hunter across the road and competition. Oh man, it's just, it's like SEC football. <laughs> you know, either you got to get better or you're going to get left behind. And at, back then that's what crab orchard area was. I mean, it was like a cutthroat. It was you, ha- I mean, you're some of the best hunters in the world. So yeah, Sullivan and him, you know, it's, it's funny. They come out of that pedigree and now it moved off in different areas. And, and uh, but the goose hunting is nowhere near like it was. A lot of those clubs have switched to duck hunting. Um, uh, it's concerning here just our lack of mallards and the migration paths have changed. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of thought process and theories, you know, this and that. Um, I can simplify it easy as this. You know, right now there are landowners anywhere up and down the flyway that are having discussions about flooding up their back 40 acres they got and and you know create our own little refuge and this and that and it's only sustainable so long before migration paths will will slow down and they will change a little bit um and it's it's a nothing wrong with that and I'm, i'm not pointing fingers by any means it's just everybody is getting better at holding ducks and attracting ducks and hunting ducks yeah yeah we uh we've talked about that a lot we are probably the best at killing that we've ever been. I mean, when you look at it, like it's, you know, with the technology that we have and the spinners and the calls and the decoys and the blinds and the way we can access them now where a long time ago, you know, if they were, you know, you didn't have the, the mud buddies and the go devils and stuff like that. They were just at a part in the river. You couldn't get to them at, but now there's nothing that's off limits to these ducks. There's no safe place anymore. No, no, and so year in, year out, day in, day out, those ducks become imprinted to where, number one, when they get to their wintering areas, they become yep. nocturnal. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem hard. And regardless, they become nocturnal because they hear an ATV drive in on a levee every morning at, at 5.36 a.m. Or they hear a, a, a an outboard motor or a go to or a surface drive, whatever, you know, like they hear those things. And then, and then, then they start hearing gunshots and then, you know, and that duck could just be sitting down over on, on a safe piece of water, but they're getting right. out of there. Like that noise and that kind of disruption, they're going to find a place to where they're not disturbed. Uh, and, and it's interesting. We are seeing that now because of technology with GPS right. track birds, uh, the Tennessee Mallard project. And the, actually it's Cohen wildlife. If you guys don't follow on Instagram, it's outstanding. They do tons of research here in Tennessee, but um, I was fortunate to go and, and ban mallards and ducks with them me and my son and, and our crew here at final flight and helped them out and the research that they have you we can see that when it was interesting that the guy that's in charge of it Corey, he mentioned he said when i started doing this i thought when i trapped birds in west tennessee in december that i'm gonna you know i'm gonna follow these birds are gonna be in arkansas next and then in louisiana and then whatever then i'm gonna follow back up the following it didn't happen when he trapped them in tennessee in december they were in Tennessee in January up to the middle part of February, and then they went back to right. the nesting grounds. And next fall, they come right back to the same little small area in Tennessee. And it's wild because there's not a lot of, once they get to their wintering area, there's not a lot of what we call traffic. I grew up yeah. hunting traffic. You know, we hunt river bottoms, you hunt traffic because that's what ducks do. They're going to, they get up and fly every morning, they look for food sources, all that. Well, that is diminishing every year. You don't see traffic anymore and a lot of it is is disturbances of of overhunted and pressure and then number two of private landowners doing a good job of managing the resource 
and they're not hunting their private refuges or they're not, you know, um, and all that. So you see some of you, and it's part of the reason you see some of your best hunts the last week in the season is because everybody's out hunting. They're saving their best stuff and like, well, we're going to go burn our refuge down now. We've <laughs> saved it all season. We hunted, we hunted beside right. our refuge, but come, come that last Saturday and Sunday, we're going to go in there and hunt the refuge. You know, and a lot of, a lot of people think, well, you know, birds finally showed up. Well, no, they've been here right. the whole time. We you just hadn't seen them. them. They just been setting yeah, they've just been saving them. I'm and, looking and all that. at it now. Yeah, you're right. Like, there's a bunch of birds on here that just never left Tennessee or never left that little yeah. that little nook that they. Why would in. you leave? You can yep. you got food, you got water, and no pressure. That's it. That's it. And when they do leave and they get harassed or shot into and all that, they and and what he's finding is when they do leave, there's two things. Uh, most of the time, it is at night. It's nocturnal, and they're probably going to a private area that has standing crop, but it's right. after dark. Uh, and they're leaving way before shooting time gets there. So when the hunters get there, they don't even know, you know, they say the water's muddy and they, you know, they were there overnight, but the ducks were, but they don't know what time they left. And then the other trigger that moves up is an extreme weather event. You know, if you have an extreme code and you can see on some of his GPS marked birds, you know, extreme code, you would have ducks that would, they'd go 90 miles, hundred miles South. They'd ride it out for three or four days. And as soon as it started warming up, they come right back to the exact same area in West Tennessee. Now, this is just a small sample size of West Tennessee ducks, uh, but it's it's obvious that's going on all across when, the whole When wildlife. you read any of the old Nash Buckingham books, he talks about the cold weather and the hunting and the places, but he always talked, and nobody ever talks about it, the hidden honey holes. The honey holes. There was a hole. I knew about a honey hole here in an Oxbow and a, bre- a lake. Nobody ever hunted them, blah, blah, blah. Well, yep. there's none of them places left anymore. GPS has a lot no. to do. X no. has a lot to do with that, too. Because well, right, can, but... but but yeah. this place wouldn't have been an onyx. This would have been in the middle of a, a frozen or, or flooded timber where nobody went to because it was too much work. They he had a uh, they had field bosses back then, which was usually a black gentleman that worked for a hunting club, and he would push him in on a piro or a, a, one of those yep. I don't know what you call it, a canoe flat bottom boat with a stick, yep. and that was that guy's job. Well, it was so hard to get in there they just didn't go. But they would know these hidden yeah. places back there, and if the weather would get real bad, it would push those birds out of there and it'd move them around much. Well, those places now are all hunted, flat bottom or uh, uh, airboats, mud buddies, every place. There's no hidden places anymore in the in the United nope. States. So you're saying it's too easy to get to these places. Everybody can get to them. Right. When, when we were in Canada hunting, me and Andy found a back road one time, and we found a, a slough, and it had a corn, it had wheat stubble, and we shot a bunch of mallards and geese one morning. A bunch. That was a place that don't get hunted very often. It was the middle of nowhere. There was no traffic up there. Those places you don't find no more. Right. I and mean, you might in Canada. Mm. You might in no. the Amazon jungle shooting teal somewhere, <laughs> but you're not going to Mexico with Ramsey Russell. You're, you're not going to in the United States anymore, hardly at all. You know, even Wyoming, no, even Wyoming, right. they're hot water ponds. Everybody's right. hunting them now. Yeah, you're right. And that's a, you know, and, and it's a sad state, nothing to do about it, but it, it's just, you know, it, it's just that, the, the resources is managed well. And a lot of that is private landowners are managing, you know, their own properties well. And the Canada goose situation is a, such a sad man. It's just a, I mean, I grew up and that's, that's a common question. People ask me like, man, what does a Tennessee boy learn to blow a goose call like that? Like, y'all don't, I don't get that many geese. Well, when I was a kid, we did. I mean, Roofoot Lakewood went over a hundred thousand, you know, up to 150,000 Canada geese every winter. It was, it was in my backyard. Like we had, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, it was common. And now, like, goodness, you don't see anything, you know, other than residents. And, and uh, 
but a lot of that, I mean, I, and I, you know, and going to a little spill on it and, and called this out back even in the nineties, you could see the writing on the wall, you know, number one, the, the population of no-till or the popularity of no-till farming had a huge impact on our Canada goose migration. Um, and, and I, I want to lay these factors out and then I'll come back and, and kind of explain more, uh, no-till farming, uh, uh, power plants, you know, cooling, cooling lakes, um, and then resident resident population of, of Canada geese, the reintroduction of the residents. So how all those play in harmony together is, you know, we found a subspecies of the Canada goose that we didn't even think existed, and we relocated them. They turned into park right. geese. They're genetic. God gave them, I mean, gave them, hey, you know, they got a longer bill length. They're, they're heavier in weight. They're genetically designed to right. not migrate. That is that is how God built them. So we put these in, them in areas specifically like Chicago, this and that. Well, then they explode. So they explode in numbers. All right. Well, then you've got no-till farming, which in historically before no-till farming came really popular in the 80s and 90s is, you know, every fall when fields are harvested, first thing the farmers do specifically up north in, in the Illinois Plains and the Dakotas and Minnesota and all that is they diss the, they diss the fields under. So any excess grain that comes out of the combine is now flipped and now it's just dirt. So any available food source is not not available. So the residents are there. They got plenty of food source to go in, all that. The third factor of all of this is the, the cooling lakes. So that never freezes. I mean, they're friends of mine that are up there. They're bass fishing in, in January, and it's water temperatures, 55, 60 right. degrees, and I'm froze solid in Tennessee. It's not right. Like, that's, that's not natural things. So the grand scheme of things is – You've got Johnny Migrator Canada Goose coming out of, out of, out of Manitoba. He's not going to fly over a million of his buddies that look like him, <laughs> talk like him, think like him, but they're actually genetically not him, you know. So he intermingles with these residents when they have an extreme weather event. Um, unless they get a ton of snow, they're going to fly out to fields that are always going to have readily grain available because it's not plowed under. So they can scavenger through that. And when he needs to go back to his safe haven, he's always going to have water to roost on every single night that will never freeze. When you add all of those combinations together, it to me, it's an obvious scenario. You know, I've been a little disappointed with our conservation groups. of not not telling that story. Right. Like there's a lot of and not and there's more factors to that. But but a lot of this that we created, in a sense, of and the Canada Goose migration has completely altered and changed forever and to not see more stories about that or documentaries to me is a little baffling um, and it's not really a good service to other hunters i think that story needs to be told and more enlightened i've not ever heard it put that way about the no-till farming because the area that we're at in texas they still uh work the ground so peanut yeah. peanuts is mainly what we hunt here and uh some winter wheat and milo and a little bit of corn but they rotate their crop. So everything's on a circle pivot and they'll do half the pivot and yep. peanuts, half the pivot and whatever else. So they always disc it under. And then next year they flip basically. So yep. we're in an area where there's still, there's a little bit of no-till, but not much, but that makes, a, I've never heard that argument put that way. And that makes a ton of sense. There's always food available and there's always water available. So unless you get this big weather event, which we've not had in a very, very long time, you know, you get this blizzard um, that's it. Yeah, when they're I'm, not going to go anywhere. I was watching so, and, Grumpy and, Old Men not long ago, and that's set around Thanksgiving in Minnesota, and they got snow up to their buttholes. 
I oh, mean, yeah. that and doesn't it, happen yeah. anymore. That was normal. It, and it does. And that's, and that is a big part of it as well. And, and, and we've noticed we had a, this is years ago. We had a big, I mean, it was a Chicago got hit with a big snowstorm, specifically Southern Michigan. Uh, and then we, we actually got a little bit of a push of some migratory geese and we shot a net collar and I called a buddy of mine that bands with the DNR in Michigan. And I was like, Hey man, what's this, what's this number? And he was like, Whoa, 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 what number? And he said, no, man. He said that, that goose was a transplant bird that they, tra- it was a resident that they transplanted to Detroit city park <laughs> that, that was forced to leave from a survival standpoint now, because all the migratory get like they had, cause I mean, they got like 14 inches of snow. Right. So what happened? And then I t- after having that conversation with him and his exact comment, he said, Kelly, Define a migratory Canada goose today. Yeah. He said, it's cloudy. And then he was saying this back in the 90s. And, and, but his point was, he said, just watch this spring, your local resident population is going to increase because you've got a lot of transplant birds that come from Michigan that were forced for survival. They ended up with other mig- true migratory geese mm-hmm. and they just took off and flew further south because, man, their local pond there was on froze solid and, and they didn't have a Coonan Lake to sleep on. And the and they couldn't get feed because the snow depth was way too much, and they ended up in Tennessee, and we still have them here today. Or their offspring. We uh, I grew up in Wichita Falls, and we had no local geese then. They're probably five thousand now. Lazy and genetics not, is what it is. And but I, I mean, from a yeah. survival standpoint, it makes sense. You're they're forty miles from us now. I yeah. saw yeah. some. So what, I saw some the other so, side of Seymour now. I mean, right yeah, at Seymour, so, right, so they're getting closer. Yeah, and think about this. So the weak die off and the strong survive. Right. So if you have a major weather event that comes through and you have that big of a population of resident Canada geese that are genetically, they won't migrate, then you have a true migratory goose that comes in. Well, then, you know, even your migratory geese are staying with those residents because, man, the residents aren't leaving. Why am I going to leave? Right. Well, then the weak migratory goose, they die off. Well, the strong survive. And then it just it evolves from year to year where – they become a stronger species, uh, and they don't have to migrate anymore. They're a tougher. There's a tougher goose today than what it was 20 years ago. <laughs> it's scary. I mean, it, uh, it's, it's it's what we've it's what we've done, and we've kind of we've and we've created influence and kind of bred that into them. And we've created it is the worst yeah. part. So where yeah. do you? I mean, where do you see all this going? I mean, you know, crystal <laughs> crystal ball. What ends up happening so 10 years from now? I've, I've said I've said this before too, and and I and I am not for government regulation right. i'm up for private enterprise business so but hypothetically speaking imagine if and, and, and again i am not for this but imagine if cooling lakes had to discharge water the temperature that it was intaked right you know and and not discharge it at 55 60 degrees what if it was at 32 or 33 degrees right you know um or you know or even that where they didn't you know have the warm water discharges if that didn't exist if at the end of the day they can have all the food they want. If they don't have water to roost on at night, they're gone. Yeah. And Mother Nature kicks in to rehab extreme weather events to where you'll get ice and you'll have lakes that freeze over. You'll still have river systems that'll still have a little bit of open water, but a good bit of your areas and those big cooling lakes, they're going to lock up tight. And once they start freezing, they're not going to thaw until February. So you will have a lot more of your natural migrations I mean, it, it'll it'll help it, but but again, I'm not for government coming in and telling a private enterprise, you know, you can't. I mean, I'm not, I'm not for that. But I, I will say, if you the the concept of 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 taking water in really cold that normally would freeze and discharging it at you know at warm water discharge and never freezing, that is against what Mother Nature and God intended. Right. Um, 
you know, we used to have in our little slice of heaven out here in West Texas, we, we got, you know, we made our name off of the Western Canada goose and now oh, yeah. it is the speckle belly goose. I mean, that is a population that has just exploded and yeah. expanded within the last mm-hmm. decade. Yep. And that's a, and, and goodness, I have a love hate relationship with those. Things. I hate them. <laughs> that, man, you both in. No, that's another, <laughs> that's another story, but. Yes, and same thing here. You know, historically they're wintering. You know, on the on the Louisiana marsh and 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 the southern end of the flyway. Uh, and man, that's it's going back all the way up into central Illinois. Yeah, you're having they're wintering, and and it's creating an explosion of people hunting them. Um, and it's they've always been here. It's just their migration stops are a little further north than what they used to be. Yeah, a lot further. North, uh, I should say. You know, just on Facebook and stuff. I mean, you see, I see guys in Ohio and Michigan, and like they're shooting speckle bellies now. I used to yeah. never ever even see anybody. No, up there shooting specks, but they're buying no. speck decoys now. Yeah, more power to them. I'm not. They're a love hate relationship. <laughs> they're, they're tough. I'm telling you, there's there's days that they they are the easiest thing in the world, and then there are days that you're just like, what happened? What yeah. what world am I living in that I can't call this goose? Out? I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny story and and I with with our call company I work with Power Calls and Brooke Richard is outstanding spec caller and they they pick on me I'm used to be I used to be the kid now I'm the old guy of the group which I don't know how to take that but <laughs> but that's fine but uh they pick on me because I have such a love hate relationship for them but it, it it's kind of where a lot of this started is you know I remember one time I, me and Grounds were in Alberta. And this is when Final Approach was doing some video series stuff. Uh, and actually, I think we we're filming an episode for Waterfowler TV. Uh, Ron Lashkall was there, me and Ron and Tim. Um, I'm trying to think who the other ones. It was mainly us three. Kevin Gross was there. Uh, he played baseball with the Dodgers. And uh, anyway, but it, I mean, we hunted, we're there hunting Canada geese first and foremost. But when opportunity arises, specs, you know, that we're going to try to obviously call them in and ever, we struggle. Like, I mean, here we are supposed to be some of the best goose hunters, right. you know, that, that people at least consider of us. And, you know, Canada geese, oh, yeah, we do our thing. But specs, like, oh, man, we're, so, but, you know, and then I learned, you know, years later, I was in and with the Haydells down in Louisiana. And uh, he said, oh, man, you're overthinking this. You, you got to be intentional. You can't hunt Canada's and, and specs all combo. You know, if you're going to spec hunt, just put out, just go spec hunting. Right. You don't need all them decoys. He said, give me three decoys. I was like, come on, Rod, you can't, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. He said, no, no, no. Put them three decoys about 50 yards out in front of you. Let's get on a field edge or something. He said, just, just don't overthink it. Just keep it simple. And I mean, every flock that got anywhere close, they called in. Right. Like it was like the easiest thing in the world. And then it realized like all these years, you know, we were just overthinking. We were trying to power hunt them like we were in Southern Illinois hunting migrating Canada geese. I guess Um, you just you just shed a light on something because that's that's kind of I don't know. I've got the mentality of if 50 dozen's not working, let's throw out 100 dozen. Yeah. Which I guess I should go. Hey, let's throw out 10. But the problem is, is we have clients out here. And I don't want to ever be considered. I don't want anyone to ever think that I cut a corner. Does that make sense? Like, you know, you go, you go on a, on a, on a guided hunt and the guy throws out five or 10 dozen decoys. Like if it doesn't work, he's going to be like, well, he's just a lazy jackass. that didn't want to do it. You didn't want, you don't want to pull a Matt Sullivan. Yeah. Matt, (laughs) Matt, Matt and Brian both worked for me in the nineties. 
Oh, luckily goodness. they had He's left. Got some stories, I'm sure. Yes. yes. Luckily at the time they had left and done their own thing, and so he was not working for me then. But Matt put out six decoys one morning. Yeah. Then went to the truck to get his calls and <laughs> fell asleep and took a nap and never went back to the spread. <laughs> and then wondered That's where his guys went and why didn't he get a tip and why he didn't get a tip. <laughs> why didn't get a tip. That does not surprise me. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, we've 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 had Matt on a couple times, and j- I'm telling you what, how that man is, I don't know how he didn't get more black eyes and broken noses. Like he's got some oh, stories, man. He has got both of them have good stories. I mean, that is, uh, yeah, it it is, uh, it it's it's interesting, man. There was actually a story that I think it was Brian, and I don't I don't know. You know how stories get the 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 older they get, the more the, the bigger the legend grows, and I thought it was either. It's either Brian, Brian Southern, Grady uh, Stevens, or Adam Romano. One of those three. But they were at real foot in a calling contest in the middle of their routine and looked over his shoulder. There's actually some geese flying by, and he just forgot about the light. You know, you, you only call 90 oh, seconds. Yeah. When the light comes on, you got 10 seconds to wrap up or you're disqualified. Well, he just completely ignored it, and he called, and I mean, he lit them geese right out there in front of us <laughs> in the water. And, of course, he, the, the buzzer went off, and he got DQ'd, and he just threw his hands up in the air and, you know. Uh, and that story may be nowhere near true today, but I'm going to believe it is because yeah. that sounds just like any one of those three. Hundred percent going to go legend. with it. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. That's one hundred percent true. It's got to yeah. be. It's got to so, be. So, um, so you are in the Outdoor Hall of Fame. Well, I mean, number one, like that's an incredible honor in itself. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, that's it. how many Michael Waddell yeah. and Michael Waddell got inducted the same time, and he comes to me and says, "Man, are we old enough for this?" And I was like, "Well, I, you know, I, yeah, I guess we are now." It's like, I'm, I mean, you know, what do you say? And at the end of the day, you know, we all, me and him both, I can speak for him too. You know, like I don't know if we're worthy for, worthy of this, but you're honored. Yeah. Uh, and so, and and not only that, when you win a contest or when you're when you're in the public eye, even around non-hunters, you want to portray hunting in a positive light. So when you're kind of given that title or, 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 or honored by that, you want to give back and make it better than what it was when you come into it. And I know I can speak for him and all the other ones that, yeah, we're humbled and honored and me, myself, and may not necessarily feel worthy just because you're trying to be humble about it. But at the end of the day, like, goodness, yeah, it's, that's great. And I will say this, and I kind of mentioned the, you know, that you have to do a little acceptance speech and looking back on things and, and I, I've told, I've actually had some good conversations with some dear friends of mine, one Sean Stahl and Ron Quist and goodness, we can go on down the list, but, but how blessed we are to be able to have hunted and to have um, kind of rubbed shoulders with some of the best waterfowlers in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and like, and I had some, this conversation with Stahl, it's been years at NWTF years ago that, especially when, you know, when Tim passed away, I never, uh, never really thought about it that much, you know, beforehand, but when he passed, it really shed a light that, you know, gosh, Kelly, like I rubbed shoulders with Tim. Like we traveled together. We went to, I mean, he loved hunting them hilltops, you know, we'll pull into a field and it didn't matter where those geese are set the day before we're going to go set up on that hilltop <laughs> and little things like that. You don't realize how much you're learning and how blessed you are to be able to duck hunt and goose hunt with people like that until they're gone. And then, you know, and I think one of the last mallards that Eli Haydale shot was on my blind on the river here in Kentucky. Um, I'll never forget. It was snowing and, and Kelly Haydale was with us and getting him in the boat. And, and listen, I have looked up to the Haydales for 
my whole life because that little DR85 call that they come out with in 1985 is so far ahead of the curve from a technology. It is a musical instrument, and Eli being proficient in saxophone and all that, it's true to why he designed that. But I'll never forget getting him in the blind, and we were we were a little late getting in the blind. I mean, it was snowing sideways, and and I looked up through the shooting stalls, and there's just Mallers just coming in and landing. And I said, Mr. Eli, hey, let come up here and shoot shoot you one of these ducks, you know? And uh, he he had. I handed him two shells, and he just put one shell in the magazine, closed it, and I watched him. Nobody else even got their guns out of the gun cases. And he shouldered that gun, and as, as he was shouldering that gun, I said, just want to be ready, Mr. Eli, go up there and shoot one of them. And they were coming in and landing. He goes, man, oh, man, look at them mallets. And I watched him crush a greenhead, and I was done. Yeah. Like, it almost hit, like, and, and as a moment, I'll net, like, and I even told Kelly, it's like, how blessed are we, and even you guys with this podcast, Let's be honest. How blessed are we to be able to have phone numbers, have rub shoulders, have collaborated with product with some of the best hunters in the industry? And me personally, whether it's Sean Stahl, the Haydells, goodness, Grounds, and we can go on and on and on and on. And there's there's people I'll I'll, I'll leave out, but like I, I'm I'm honored. And 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 I've, I've had this discussion with Stahl. I've had this discussion with Ronquist and. I was fortunate to do it from the duck side and the goose side. And I can tell you, like, there are techniques that I've used duck hunting that I picked up on from John Stevens at hunting his reservoir in Stuttgart or hunting with the Haydells at their marsh in Louisiana or hunting with Sean Stahl or, or Grady Stevens in Canada or Grounds. And we can go on and on. There's, there's countless people I'm leaving out. And I'm not even doing service. But <laughs> that is a deal to where I am so honored and blessed to have learned from them. Um, so yeah, I mean, being, being inducted into that hall of fame is, is an award that may have my name on it, but there's a lot of other names that are, that are in fine print below it. It's crazy how small the waterfowl community is. Jeff had always kind of said that. And then like we started this podcast and like, it really is so small, 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 small. And I, you know, cause you know, I grew up in this and, uh, you know, I, uh, like you said, you don't know, you don't realize what you're learning when you're learning it. But like, I've had the opportunity to hunt with some of the best of the best out here. And, um, Jeff was always just like, you know, it's a small community and I'm like, ah, whatever. It's, it's big. It's huge. Like there's so many players in it, but it's not like, there's like, it's a, it's you weave your path in here and you know, one person leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And then you get there and you're like, this is a very small field. Yeah, and I, I've always said from a hunting standpoint, you know, one of the biggest things that's helped me is being able to travel and learn and pick up techniques and 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 ideas just from concepts of people in their lo- local area right. doing what they do, you know, and and um, you learn things like that, and and you, then you can incorporate that in your area where you hunt. And me, it's no different, you know. I mean, goodness, I've I've hunted out there, and you guys neck of the woods, and, and hunting those lessers, and. You know, I'm putting decoy spreads out, leaving a donut hole in the middle. I'm like, wait a minute, guys. Now, ah, what? A, you know, I'm like, well, when in Rome, do what you know, right, you see what they do, and, and every goose comes in, lands right in that, you know, flock. And it's interesting. We filmed out there a few years ago. Kyle was with us, and uh, and I think it was Kyle's first time hunting out there, and they were scouting, and and I'm like, you know, filming hunting those lessers. Like, you got to have a bunch to really film because yeah. they're all gonna the roost is coming. They're all coming at once, you know, and uh, 
So I asked Kyle, I was like, well, how many groups do you think, you know, when it's, oh, there's a bunch, a bu- there's like 5,000 a group. Well, back in my mind, I was like, well, that might be two volleys. <laughs> like, it's hard to put a, it's hard to put a 30 minute episode together on two volleys. It'll be the most epic volley, you know, one, but it's hard to do. A lot of slow um, motion. It is, yes, you know, uh, but it was interesting. That's a, it's just different area of the country. You pick up little different tips and techniques and, like I say, man, it's a small industry, but when you've been fortunate to have traveled and to have duck hunted and goose hunted with the world's best, and it goes back for decades, like, man, I'm just so fortunate. And now, I mean, I don't, like I mentioned before we even started in this podcast, guys, I don't, I don't have a social media, I, social media presence. I don't, I don't have a Facebook page. My, I don't, I just, I don't do that. I've got a, I've got an Instagram. I think I made 10 posts. <laughs> Um, on it you know that's, and that's uh, where i don't that's where i tried to get a hold of you first and then i was like kyle jones you gotta i, I need a number oh yeah yeah kyle kyle hit me up at nwtf i was like yeah just give him my cell number you know yeah. because i i long time ago even when facebook got started i was like man i just i don't want to live a private life right. like i don't i don't i've got a very tight-knit group of friends that I'm with and i and and that i talk to regularly and that's that's it. And I, and I, I'm kind of a little bit of an introvert, you know, and sometimes I may be a little, I don't want to, I, I, it's not my intentions, but some people maybe standoffish or quiet or not out, as outgoing that I should be. Um, I can tell you if I was way more outgoing at some shows and all that, it would be way more profitable probably in some sense, you know, but I'm not in it for that. Like I'm hunting every day because I enjoy hunting. Uh, if I kill a big deer or a big Turkey, like I, I'm not in it to do photographs and post it on social media. That's not my thing. Uh, like I'm the opposite. Like I don't need anybody to know. Like, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we do the thing, you know, we always joke around, like we want to do shirts and say, don't ask. Cause during duck season, every day you go, you're in the grocery and it's just like, how many ducks you kill? Then you go the next time. Yeah. So have a good day today. And you go the next time, you know, it's just like, and it's great. Cause these are some close, you know, people around all the time, but it, it does, you know, it, sometimes it gets excessive and you just, you get burned out. And I can see where even baseball players or celebrity, you know, they get tired. You know, I could just see where they kind of, once they go through that grind, they really back up and want to just have a private life, you know, and I'm nowhere near to that, obviously that level, but, but I was fortunate to work, like I say, travel and this and that to where, man, I just, I never really wanted to do the social media scene. Um, and sometimes it, it, it irks my friends. We might have a great day duck hunt, like, Oh, let's get a photo. And I'm like, man, throw them ducks in a bowl. Let's go. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat breakfast. And, and, uh, you know, I will say some of that has changed a little bit. You know, I mentioned the passing of Tim and different things that I do. I do miss opportunities. I wish I photographed mm-hmm. uh, funny stories or things that I didn't. And and that is one good thing I will say about social media. It timestamps that and it documents that to where it's easily findable years down the road, not just for us and for our enjoyment, for, for our kids and our grandkids. And a lot of that, I don't I don't I don't necessarily have as much of that. Yeah. It's such a fine line because I'm, I'm, you know, for social media, it's, it's a very, very great tool, but if you're not careful, it can get out of hand on you. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I've got a love hate relationship with it. Like, because, you know, to grow the podcast, we've got to have a social media presence, but like, I'll tell you what, the worst days of the week for me are the days that I have to spend doing social media. I hate it. I mean, I really, it is just a drag. And then, you know, it's just, it's, it's a toxic place. It can be if you follow well, the we wrong have with people. Our, with our store at Final Flight, like my, my nephew Cameron, he does all of that. And I don't mind somebody like with business side, they can, 
post all I want. Me, like I have no problem with that. I, I'm like you. Yeah, it's I can't manage it. Like I get stressed out, and not only that because there's a huge part of me, and maybe this is a root of it. I want to portray hunting and what I enjoy doing in a positive light. Right. And if I post something that might stir some feathers and all that, and let's be honest, you're always going to make somebody upset. There's going to be that guy that's going to be judgmental or that guy, like, yeah. and it breaks my heart. Cause, and I don't, so I just don't do it. I'm like, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be judged and be, you know, right. you do something like that. And and then it's just like, you know, I, I did a Instagram, my created that account. I, I was with Under Armour for like 10 years. You know, and, and they knew, know these guys dearly and, and they knew how I was. And I, I just wasn't in it for that. And they're like, well, you ought to create one. So I did it one, at one show. And then after that, actually, I posted a picture of my son. I mean, out, we were in a boat, but like it might have been, I don't know, like a foot and a half of water outside. Well, his life tech was right beside him. Oh. And we just did it for the photograph. But but like he didn't have and then somebody made a comment. And I'm like, well, technically, they're right. I shouldn't have done. It. But it broke my heart. Yeah. I'm like. I don't want to have to go through all these things. And like, if you're on an ATV, why well, do you got to have a helmet? You got to have, well, technically, yeah, you should have that. But like, God, we don't out here in the country. That's not how we roll. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, well, I'm hearing a, like I'm in a flooded field that I can stand up. It's like right. literally 18 inches deep, Yeah, you know, and, and we all can stand up, but that's a, so that's another deal that, I, but the dangerous part of social media for me, and I've said this to a lot of, a lot of guys and friends, like, would you still hunt if you didn't have social media to post a photo on after the hunt? Yes, I would. And that's a, that is a, and that, and that, that question wasn't necessarily for you, but that is for all the listeners. Yes. Because there are people out there that they can't wait to post that photo of that hero shot after the hunt. Absolutely. Uh, in my opinion, I think we need to do a little bit of soul searching and realize why we're hunting. Um, if, if you couldn't, if, if Facebook was down for the day and, and so was Instagram and TikTok or whatever now, uh, would you still get up and go hunting? And a lot of people, uh, sadly, probably wouldn't. They'd lie. They they would lie and say that they would. But, you, I mean, we all know better. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. I, it, it, it's, you're exactly right. Like, if, if, social, if social media was down for the season, would you even bother? How many days would you go hunting? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, would you, that, w- I, would you really go out there? You know, I mean, you know, hey, it's snowing out there. And the bed's warm and your missus is, you know, it's Christmas time and she wants to spend time with you. And, uh, would you really go out there if it wasn't going to be that hero shot at the end of it? And I think I, sadly enough, I think the answer for a lot of these guys, if they were truly honest, it would be no, it would be no. Yeah. And I agree with that. And it's a sad state, you know, and, and, but I will encourage them to just think about that question a little bit. And then when you do post and it's okay to post hero shots, people want to see that. Post it in a positive light because there are people watching that are non-hunters that don't get what we do. Yes. They don't understand it. It doesn't necessarily mean they're defiant and there's pushback, but we're all in this together. And I don't care how you kill your turkeys. As long as it's legal, you go do what you do. You know, uh, no. same thing with ducks and geese. Like, listen, I'm not an ethic police here. You know, uh, they just go do what you do as long as it's legal and it's portraying our industry and our sport in a positive light. That's fine. I don't. I don't think... We, we beat each other up so much, you know, I, that's a, that's a wrong. That's another thing that goes on a lot that I, that I disagree with. But um, as long as it's an illegal means and you're portraying the sport in a positive light, because there are people that don't get hunting. Right. And that is truth. They don't get firearms. And, and you have to kind of walk a mile in their shoes and realize when they were eight, nine, 10 years old and how they grew up, 
they grew up in an environment that probably wasn't like how we grew up. So when you try to get in their shoes, you're like, you know what? I, I might can see where they're coming from, but you know what? We might could educate each other here. Yeah. So anytime you post a photo or a kill shot or whatever, just, just be thinking that because we're all in this together and, and, and we want to keep doing this as well as we want our kids to keep doing it. I draw the line at reaping though. I, I, I can't, can't, I can't get behind. Oh, reaping. Yeah. <laughs> can't get behind reaping. A, yeah. But the thing, the, so I guess what my biggest problem with reaping is because it looks like some of the shots are pretty barbaric. I mean, you got turkeys heads exploding and like, that's not good for hunting. Um, yeah. If it weren't for that, I mean, I don't know. I, I it, it kind of seems a little bit like cheating to me, but I mean, and you've got to have the right bird. I understand. And I'm not going to do it here because of snakes and stickers and it's just, it's not happening for me. And maybe it's a little bit of envy. Yeah. I don't know, but um, I don't know it gets a little it, when when i see videos of that happening i kind of it feels a little bit like an elmer fudd type moment to me yeah so that's true. I, hey let me tell you a funny story on funny story on that me and jim ronquist were turkey hunting this is late 90s early 2000s he was actually here with me in tennessee uh, on on tough turkeys of <laughs> anyway that's another story but uh, i'll never forget jimbo telling me this story um, a friend of his in missouri was his wife was a painter, an artist, and she painted up an umbrella, a black umbrella, of the front side of a strutting turkey. <laughs> and he says, man, I'm telling you, you could just walk out there and kill one of them things. And Jimbo was telling me this story. And I'm like, man, Jimbo, I've heard some crazy stuff, man. But <laughs> you can go do that, but I wouldn't tell anybody you did that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's been 30, 25 years ago, you know. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of see where, you know, the roots of where that stuff came from and evolved from. I've always, like, there were times that bird would hang up and I'll be like, damn it, if there was just a way that I could, like, crawl out there. I had the idea. I just, you know, the snakes and yeah. the stickers have always prevented me from crawling across the, the ground here in Texas. But, yeah, I, I don't know, but. Listen, it's been an hour and a half, and I know you've got a lot of stuff going on. This has been uh, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I, I yeah. really, really enjoy it, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross one day, and uh, we can uh, sit and chop it up at a hunting show or something like that. But this has been a been a I, lot of fun. Hour and a half flew flew I, right by. So we appreciate. Yeah, your time. I said I said I said before you guys we got started. I don't know you guys personally that well, but you, you guys like duck hunting and turkey hunting and college football. Like we're good, <laughs> so we're boys. That's what what some friends of mine from college say. We're he said if you know he said I figured you out KP. He said if I know your turkey hunting spots, he said I know we're boys. I was like, well, so you guys like college football and all that. We're boys. So we, I'll come back. Anytime. We appreciate you being on here. Thank you and God bless you, sir. And have a great, safe spring turkey season. Yes, sir. Y'all too. Right, God bless. You. Take Bye -bye. care. Kelly Powers, Outdoor Hall of Fame. Very, very honorable man. He is. He is. He's done a lot for the industry, and uh, he tells it like it is. So This comes out on Friday? It does. We will be in Knoxville. Come by and see us at the Bass Classic. We will be in the convention center there. Uh, checks out. Uh, come by and say hi. I'd love to meet you and shake your hand, talk to you in person. Thank you. God bless y'all, and have a safe weekend. Bye-bye. Go check out our wonderful sponsors. If I can find the list. Uh, go check out Gundog, Shin Gear, Lucky Duck, Looking Glass Podcast, Huntproof App, Alpha Outdoor Specialties, Bangtail Whiskey, uh, Stanford Hunting Outfitter, Dirty Duck Coffee, Ducks Unlimited, Double T British Kennels, Pacific Calls, Dive Bomb Industries, Boss Shot Shells, and Mossberg.